What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I love to read biographies because I can learn so many interesting things about people. Among the biographies I love to read are those of the presidents of the United States. But recently, I've found some great new books that present presidential biographies in an interesting new way. So today, I'd like to share with you a little presidential poetry. While many may not connect poetry with biography, children's poets in particular are masters of using poetry to convey information. These works of nonfiction poetry offer some great benefits, one of which is the fact that they are very short. So you can get a lot of information packed into one small place. You don't have to read a whole biography to get a sense of who the person is. Another thing I like about this form is that while they do take on a serious note, they also tend to add a little humor. So you get to learn funny things you may not know from another biography format. For example, The President Stuck in the Bathtub, Poems about the Presidents by Susan Katz and illustrated by Robert Newbecker, features a poem about William Taft, who weighing in at 340 pounds often had problems with his size. This book features different poetry styles that bring to life little-known tidbits about the presidents and their family members. Another great book of presidential poems is Rutherford B. Who Was He? Poems About Our Presidents by Marilyn Singer and illustrated by John Hendricks. Singer does a great job of bringing the presidents to life by packing her poems with information, but she also includes some additional information at the end for those who may want just a little bit more. The humorous illustrations also add to the overall playful tone of this book. If you still don't have your fill of presidential poetry, then you can also check out Presidential Misadventures, Poems That Poke Fun at the Man in Charge, by Bob Raska and illustrated by Dan Burr. Featuring the Clarahue, which is a simple poetic form specifically invented to make fun of famous people, this collection adds in another set of fun poems written in a very specific style that again with a comic illustration adds some great insight and humor into the presidential antics. So if you want to have a little fun, but still want to learn a little bit more about our commanders and chiefs, then why not check out a little bit of presidential poetry on this recommendation from us here at Rachel's World. Picture books aren't just for young children. They are for everyone. Our guest today, author and educator, Margaret Blair Young, talks about the universal appeal of picture books. Young's published works include the novels House Without Walls, Salvador, and Heresies of Nature. She also co-authored a trilogy of historical novels about black Mormon pioneers titled Standing on the Promises. Here's Rachel and Margaret Blair Young. We're in studio with Margaret today. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you. I am delighted to talk to you today about 
one of our favorite local authors who recently left us. He passed away recently, and he has just been a wonderful influence on children's literature and influence on the local children's literature community. So I thought it was a wonderful opportunity to to get together and, and maybe visit about our dear friend Rick Walton. So tell us a little bit about Rick. Well, I have an essay that Rick put up on his Facebook wall that I I kind of want to let him speak. So we'll start with uh, what he has to say. Picture books are often seen as literary baby food, the stuff we feed children until they have the teeth to eat real food. I would argue, however, that picture books are not baby food. They are not just for young children. In fact, I would argue that picture books are perhaps the most important literary format that we have. Here are 10 reasons why I believe this. One, they are the first books that children fall in love with, that turn children into lifetime readers. Lifetime readers become lifetime learners. Lifetime learners become lifetime contributors. I want to talk about that before we move on to to the second point. I use uh, in my creative writing classes, I kind of set my students loose to find authors who they love. And the way I – when I ask them to report back on who they've discovered, I say, who have you fallen in love with lately? Who Who did you fall in love with yesterday? And I mean, what author did you discover that got you excited? And for college-age students, that excitement will manifest itself in their own desire to – they'll suddenly say, wait a minute, I have something to say on that. And then the writing takes off. It fertilizes those lovely imaginative seeds that they have within them. So when you give a child books – my husband and I are both English professors, teachers. um, So our children certainly had a lot of books. We maybe got them into Shakespeare a little early. And my son, who was 10 at the time, attended a college class on Shakespeare and when they were going to perform sonnets and my my husband had all of the students perform and then my son said, excuse me, you didn't, you didn't get me. And <laughs> I love <laughs> went it. Up and did his sonnet. But that you and that son is now a writer. I really think it is particularly the reading you do as a child, yeah. the most formative reading. And and I think we do it a disservice when we put it as a lesser form yes. of art or if we put it as a lesser form of reading. Because yes, Shakespeare is wonderful. I love it. But also Goodnight Moon yes. is wonderful, I, right? I was thinking about right? that and this I, morning. And I think the poetic of Goodnight Moon is almost as beautiful or more beautiful in some ways for a young child than a sonnet would be. Yes. And so I, I really it, – it breaks my heart when people say, oh, well, that's a children's book. And I'm like, don't! Because in some ways – it's of more value because that's the most formative time for our reading. You just – you think of books that, that we knew as children or books that we read to our children and how they – you know, I can still quote from Where the Wild Things Are. They gnashed their terrible teeth and rolled their terrible eyes. Uh, that's, that is a gift to be able to then share that with the children who keep coming. Marius Sendak, of course, has passed away, but we have that great legacy of the books he left us and from Rick as well. Let me go on to number two. Picture book language is often more sophisticated than the first chapter books that children read and therefore an excellent way for children to learn language. It is here that children and others can learn vocabulary, imagery, rhythm – 
shape, structure, conciseness, emotional power. And just, uh, you know, thinking of, again, the books that, that my children loved, I think every every one of those, uh, I was complaining a little bit about some of the writing that I see from my own students who are from age 18 to 25 or so. Uh, of course, they can be wonderful, but it's a different generation th- than it was 30 years ago when I first started teaching at the university. Uh, and and that legacy of children's literature, imagery, oh, so important. Uh, where would we be if, if we had the Declaration of Independence texted to King George III? Uh, <laughs> you know, the beauty of the language, the beauty of Lincoln's inaugural speeches, how do you prepare to understand what the better angels of our nature mean? And unless you have been prepared by books that get you ready for that yeah. kind of imagery. Yeah. Let me go to number three. The picture book is the most flexible of all literary formats. You can do almost anything in a picture book. This flexibility encourages creativity in both writer and reader. It broadens the mind and the imagination. And given today's challenges, we desperately need more creativity, broadened minds, imagination. That's exactly what yeah. I've been talking about. Yes, bravo. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this this is – you aren't – you think of the great inventions that have hap- happened. They are not just coincidental. Somebody has had an imagination that has gone beyond the obvious. Well, imagination does that. Yeah. To, to go beyond the obvious into the what might appear impossible, mm-hmm. yeah. but suddenly you put things together and realize, oh, wait a second. I can pull that off. Yeah. And that's one of the things that saddens me when we put so much impact on like the STEM fields, the science, technology, education and math or engineering and math. Just because not that those fields aren't important and the ways of thinking in them aren't important, but it's the humanities, it's the art that gives us this broad things. And you look at some of the greatest scientists and they were artists themselves, right? Da Vinci. Yeah, (laughs) it's amazing to me how those two things fit together. And when we try to compartmentalize them into, oh, this is science and this is art, it doesn't work. And I think we're doing ourselves a great disservice. And that's one of the things I love about picture books is they have that kind of combination with the illustrations and the text in that beautiful sense of, you know, here's kind of the structural science, but here's also this beautiful art, and how do they work together? And I, oh, what a great comment. Thank you. I, I'm going to say something that probably people will write in and give me advice on. I can't do math. It, it, as far as I know, I can't do math. Uh, and I, I would assume that some people said, of course you have. You just hadn't had the right teacher. That may be true. I'm pretty persuaded that with a teacher who could identify my learning style, probably would have to use something artistic or tactile, I could have picked it up. Uh, I have a niece who teaches chemistry by showing how it works when you're making food. What a great way to make it. That's how we take the sciences and through imaginative processes figure out how to make them accessible to people who, like me, think, I can't do that. Well, and that's one of the reasons on this show that we define literacy so broadly. And we look at all aspects of literacy because, for me, one of the most important things we need to remember is that it is all interconnected. Yes. And I think we've done ourselves a disservice in our modern way of thinking about disciplines is we compartmentalize it. This is chemistry. This is algebra. This is trigonometry. 
trigonometry. But when you really look at it, it doesn't compartmentalize like that. It It's all of everything. And I think we need to do a much better job, particularly as teachers and as concerned adults, to show that everything is so interconnected that playing an instrument will help you be a better scientist. Yes. Yeah. That's my daughter who who has her degree in music education uh, and who teaches music. And the reason she got into that was because her little girl came home with a big red F a red F, who does that, on a math paper and came home, burst into tears. My daughter was studying vocal performance, getting her master's at Indiana University. And in that moment, she realized music can help my daughter. And she changed her emphasis to music education. Yeah. Good example. Good example. Number four, the picture book with its interaction between text and illustration, with its appeal that the reader analyze that interaction, helps develop visual intelligence. It helps us look for meaning in the visual. And since most of us are surrounded by and inundated by visual images our whole lives, visual intelligence is an important skill. We're running out of time, so I'm going to quickly go through the rest. Perfect. Number five. Some of the best art being created today is found in picture books. Picture books are a great resource for art education. Six, the picture book appeals to more learning styles than any other format. It is read out loud for audible learners. It is written and illustrated for visual learners. It often asks you to interact with it physically for kinesthetic learners. Seven, in fact, the picture book of all formats is probably the best format for teaching an idea, getting across a point, because picture books are short. All messages, knowledge, ideals expressed in a picture book must be boiled down to their essence. They must be presented in a way that it is impossible to misunderstand. If you want to learn a difficult subject, start with a picture book. If you want to express a powerful message, a picture book is one of the most powerful media for doing so. Many middle, upper grade, and even college instructors have recognized the value of using picture books in their teachings. Don't you wish that we could tell some lawyers? Yes. Could you please give me that memo as a picture Picture book? Picture book, yes. (laughs) Number eight, the picture book does more than any other literary format for bonding people one with another. As a child sits on a lap and is read to, as a parent, a grandparent, a teacher, a librarian reads to a child, extremely important connections are made. Bonds are formed. Generations are brought together. Nine, the picture book also has the broadest possible age range of audience. Few four-year-olds will appreciate a novel, but many grandparents enjoy a good picture book. I have read picture books for upwards of an hour to groups including toddlers, teens, parents, and grandparents where all were engaged. And the final book, or the, the final point, number 10, The picture book is short and can fit easily into the nooks and crannies of our lives. Five minutes here, ten minutes there, plenty of time for a complete literary experience. Bravo. That that is such wonderful insight. And I think both of us agree very fully with with all of those points. Absolutely, with all ten points. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Margaret. This has just been fun revisiting some of Rick's thoughts and words and sharing our own true belief that picture books really are an important part of our lives and more people need to engage with them. Amen. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Margaret Blair Young, 
lending her voice to that of the late author Rick Walton in support of the idea that picture books should have the broadest possible audience. Next, Rachel visits with Lynette Christensen, professor in the BYU School of Education, about critical skills that children need to develop, social and emotional tools that they will use all their lives when interacting with others. Christensen also shares a grab bag of resources to help us teach these skills. Lynette works with the BYU Positive Behavior Support Initiative and has been actively involved in the implementation and research of this program in the public schools. Here is Rachel and Lynette Christensen. We're in studio today with Lynette, who's a researcher here at Brigham Young University. And one of your basic functions that you do in your research is talking about social and emotional learning and social and emotional health with children. So let's visit a little bit today about that. Listeners on the show will know that we've talked about this before. It's really an important thing. And I think it helps to reinforce our understanding that this is really critical. Social and emotional health is like really critical to children's lives. So how is it critical yeah, it's critical to our lives as adults as well. You know, um, we've talked about literacy, and if someone doesn't have the ability to read, their quality of life is compromised. It's the same thing being socially competent and socially skilled and being emotionally competent and skilled. If we don't have those, that package of skills as well, we're not as likely to have lasting relationships, not as likely to stay employed, and a, a various other quality of life issues. And so it's important for all of us to be socially and emotionally literate in the sense that kids need to learn what are these – they need to know how to identify the feeling – that they're having feelings, that they have emotions, and it's okay to have them. But to recognize what are they when they happen. And once you learn to recognize them in yourself, then you can recognize them in other people. So once I recognize that I'm sad – and what that looks like for me and my what my facial expression might look like or what I might be doing, I can recognize that sadness in you. And a lot of kids have this pretty quickly, but some don't and some adults don't. So that idea of recognizing emotions in myself, recognizing them in others, and then how do I apply the social emotional skills of showing empathy to you? How do I problem solve with you when there's a problem in an effective way? How do I deal with this anger that I might be feeling in an appropriate way? Or what do I do if I'm really worried about something? And maybe that Maybe I need to recognize the thing I'm really worried about is not very realistic to even be worried about, and I need to let it go. All of those kinds of skills are important in our mental and emotional health. I'm really interested in this kind of concept of the problem-solving piece of it, because it's not just about recognizing. It's also about dealing with these kinds of deep emotions and dealing with them, I guess, in socially appropriate ways. And, you know, what does that mean and what what does that look like? So so how do we teach kids kind of that problem-solving piece of this social-emotional literacy? Well, We know that one of the best ways to teach kids these kind of skills is to explicitly teach them. And basically what that means is I might lay out some steps for you. And those steps might – they're the basic steps. They might not always be what you use. But as a foundation to learn what to do, 
to to explicitly teach and maybe even role play and model what it might look like. So what just popped into my mind is we do a lot of work in schools and one of the skills that teachers often want to teach their kids is how to accept feedback. You know, and think about that in families. It's not fun when you give some feedback and somebody gets upset and it escalates into an argument and all that. But if kids can learn that, all right, when somebody gives me feedback, I look the person in the eye. That's a respect kind of thing. But it's also respectful of yourself that you're not looking at the floor or whatever, that you're confident in who you are. So to look at the person You might nod or acknowledge what they say. You might even say okay, even though you might not fully agree. But to remain calm, look at the person, remain calm, give some kind of an acknowledgement that you heard what they said. And if you don't agree with what they said, to ask to talk about it later. Now, the ask to talk about it later part is about, okay, we both might be a little heated over what just happened because we're starting to escalate, given that I don't like what you just told me as feedback. But if I ask to talk about it later, both of us are probably more calmed down and have it in a little bit better perspective. And then I can more – I don't sound like I'm arguing if I say to you I don't agree. So that's kind of an – that would be an example of, you know, okay, so I look at the person. I acknowledge what they said. I don't argue or complain, but I ask to talk about it later if I want to talk about it later. Or maybe maybe I realize even though I'm upset, what they said really is right. Their feedback's right on, and I need to just accept it and do it. That's interesting to me because I think a lot of times as adults, we don't realize that there are steps to this, and it seems a little bit counterintuitive sometimes to break it down that way. So how do we change our thinking as an adult to help our children kind of learn these steps? How do we analyze our own behavior and our own reactions in a way that we can help model or structure these kinds of conversations in a better way? I think that's a great question because, you know, I I have to chuckle when you hear people telling their kids not to yell, but they're yelling at their kids. So we do need to, you know, one of the best ways to help somebody else change their behavior is to change our own, right? To look at ourselves and see do what what do we need to do differently, and that's an important thing. Um, but you know, this idea of it is kind of counterintuitive to like break something down into some steps because because what we're really after is fluency. Fluency means automaticity, that we just automatically do something without thinking about it. Like we all pretty much walk down the hall without thinking about how to walk, but a toddler doesn't walk down the hall without (laughs) some effort, right? That's learning how or who's just learned how. So lots of times we're fluent in things, but we don't realize those around us aren't. And if you stop yourself and think about any skill that you teach, like you might be teaching – um, I know, Rachel, you love to do crafts kinds of things. I mean, you think about teaching somebody to knit. You're fluent at doing that. You don't even think about it. You might even be able to watch TV and not even look at it while you're doing it. But if you're teaching somebody, you have to break it down into its components and parts for them to master each one of those. And then it takes a bunch of practice before you become fluent. And that's another thing we forget when we're teaching social skills and social emotional competence kinds of things that just because we went through it once and a kid may have shown us they could do it once doesn't mean they have it mastered fluently we have to have a bunch of practice to be able to do that so this idea of breaking it into its parts really is how we learn things but once we become fluent yeah it's all meshed together and we're like wait what are the parts of that because we don't really think about it anymore I think that that is really an important way to look at it and this sense of practice, too. 
a lot of this, I mean, is hard. Sometimes we have to change our thinking. We may have to look at our child and say, well, this is what I want, but maybe not necessarily what they want. And how do I reconcile that? But some of it's just really easy and simple. So as we close up here, give us maybe two tips of some really simple things that parents can do that might help change their relationship with their children or help them feel a little more competent as parents. Well, awesome. So, you know, you're doing better than you think you are. So recognize the good things that you're getting done. I mean, we tend to focus on the things that aren't so great. But most of us are doing a lot better than we think we are. So give yourself some credit would be my first thing. I think the other thing that just popped into my head as you said this, Rachel, is think of your relationships like a bank account. That every time you have a positive, great interaction, you're making a deposit in the the account. And we want a lot of those because we want our account to be a good account, right? Good in the black account. But when we have negative interactions, and we all will because none of us are perfect, we need to recognize that we made a withdrawal to the account. And therefore, we better put a really good deposit back in the account with that person. And um, we just we have to spend time with them. And it's back to that praising and encouraging kind of things. There are a lot of messages, especially in today's world, that are negative. A lot of, fa- a lot of modeling of negative family interactions. And we have just got to stay true and positive and uplifting in what we do with young people. I love that. It's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Lynette. Thank you, Rachel. Lynette Christensen of the BYU School of Education, sharing ways we can help our children develop good social and emotional skills. We finish up the show today with two poems, Robert Louis Stevenson's My Shadow, read by Garrett Rushforth, and... The Duck and the Kangaroo by Edward Lear, known for his humorous poetry and limericks, read by Reed Wolfley. My Shadow by Robert Louis Stevenson I have a little shadow that goes in and out with me, and what can be the use of him is more than I can see. He is very, very like me from the heels up to the head, and I see him jump before me when I jump into my bed. The funniest thing about him is the way he likes to grow. Not at all like proper children, which is always very slow. For he sometimes shoots up taller, like an India rubber ball. And he sometimes gets so little that there's none of him at all. He hasn't got a notion of how children ought to play, and can only make a fool of me in every sort of way. He stays so close beside me, he's a coward you can see. I'd think shame to stick to nursey as that shadow sticks to me. One morning, very early, before the sun was up, I rose and found the shining dew on every buttercup. But my lazy little shadow, like an errant sleepyhead, had stayed at home behind me and was fast asleep in bed. The Duck and the Kangaroo by Edward Lear Said the duck to the kangaroo, Good gracious how you hop Over the fields and the water too As if you never would stop My life is a bore in this nasty pond, and I long to go out in the world beyond. I wish I could hop like you, said the duck to the kangaroo. Please give me a ride on your back, said the duck to the kangaroo. I would sit quite still and say nothing but quack the whole of the long day through. And we'd go to the Dee and the Jelly Bowlee, over the land and over the sea. Please take me a ride, oh do, said the duck to the kangaroo. Said the kangaroo to the duck, 
This requires some little reflection. Perhaps on the whole it might bring me luck, and there seems but one objection, which is, if you let me speak so bold, your feet are unpleasantly wet and cold, and would probably give me the room it is, said the kangaroo. Said the duck, as I sat on the rocks, I have thought over that completely, and I bought four pairs of worsted socks, which fit my webbed feet neatly. And to keep out the cold, I've bought a cloak, and every day a cigar I'll smoke, all to follow my own dear true love of a kangaroo. Said the kangaroo, I'm ready, all in the moonlight pale, but to balance me well, dear duck, sit steady, and quite at the end of my tail. So away they went with a hop and a bound, and they hopped the whole world three times round. And who's so happy, oh who, as the duck and the kangaroo? Two poems, My Shadow by Robert Louis Stevenson and The Duck and the Kangaroo by Edward Lear, read by a couple of our students here at BYU Radio. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.